The Forum at 8 on SAFM. Eight minutes after eight, we're often told that journalists' main goal is to ensure the rights of citizens to be truthful and to supply important information, allowing them to form adequate impression about social processes, their essence and importance, as well as about the situation in the modern world. Today we want to look at the, how the media covers the South African story. As we ask on the Forum at 8 this morning, are media ethics the casualty in our rush to break news? I'll introduce my guest shortly, but I, I want to just lay down the groundwork for the discussion, and I thought there was four major areas that I want to touch on. First of all, media ethics, because it's in the question. The second, are we in a rush? Again, it's a, it's a word that comes from the question. Who is our? Is, is it just journalists and editors, or is it also the public at large? And the fourth question, which again comes from the question, the word news. What is news? And how do we, as a discerning public, look between the noise and the news that's out there? So there's four areas that I thought we can touch on. Media ethics, are we in a rush, hour and news. But let's start with media ethics. And I've got two great guests to talk to me about this. Uh, Joe Tlolwe is the director in the Press Council and William Bird, director of Media Monitoring Africa. Gentlemen, thank you. And again, a very good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for sending in us. So let's start with media ethics. What are the basic tenets of media ethics? What are they, Joe? Basic tenets of media ethics is choosing what is right and what is wrong, deciding what is good and what is bad, and um, essentially that's what journalists do all day. They make those decisions at every second of the day. How do we do that? Are we guided by a set of rules? Um, in South Africa, um, for the press, we've got the South African Press Code, uh, which is a guide for journalists. And um, the, the, the broadcasters have got the Broadcast uh, Complaints Commission, which also has a code for them. Um, and the, um, the online uh, uh, people have um, the DMMA code, the Digital Media and Marketing Associations uh, uh, Code. So each one of the media is governed by a code that says this is what you may or may not do. William, why is it important for us to have a code? Why, why can't we just write whatever we want, mm-hmm. say whatever we want? We live in a democracy where we talk about a constitution that speaks to our freedom of expression. Why can't we say whatever and, and express whatever we want? I think that's a great point, but it's precisely because we do live in a constitution that we need to agree on what some of the common kind of ground rules are that says... If you're in the line of making news or you're out to put out something that you want people to seek or believe to be true, so if you would apply that to your news program now, there's nothing stopping you from saying that yesterday you had lunch with an orangutan who made you a wonderful uh, apple pie. Of sure. course, it's, it, it may or may not be true, but it's relevance, <laughs> its relevance and its importance for this uh, particular show mm. People would be going, my goodness, what on earth has Dawson been having? You know, he's, he's clearly been having too much ginger tea. And then, be, and then there's a problem with that. So it's, it's the moment you start to talk about professionalism, the, the, the moment you start to talk about... Because ultimately it comes down to what the role of the media is in society. And this, in this particular instance, you want credible news platforms to be disseminating news that is credible. That, in other words, that people can use to make an informed decision as to how to act in society and because of that you need to say we need some basic ground rules that people come together and agree on and that's the critical point that that uh, that that why joe exists is that 
the press council as an example and the other institutions similarly are self-regulatory bodies so the various members of each of those industries come together and they say we agree by our own uh, volunteer position to support these particular principles so it's not as though it's being imposed on them it's something that everyone says in order to us to, to have credibility, we need to agree to these principles. And then you see on top of that, a lot of institutions have their own. So SABC's editorial policies are excellent by and large. There's some challenges here and there, but they impose a, another set of standards on the individuals that work within SABC. I, I, I want to let both of you in and our listeners in on a discussion that we had that informed this topic. We were horrified, and our producers were horrified, when we opened up to a, a, a daily newspaper that had the picture of a charred body from Kutsong, still on fire. And it was the front page of a daily newspaper. It was the first thing in the morning. Our producers and I reading these things at 4 o'clock in the morning. It's the first thing we wake up to. And I'm sure for an ordinary South African out there waking up with their children, to see these kind of images is often disturbing and horrific. And, and what is the value of that kind of image on our daily front newspapers? Um, in fact, I can't comment on that specific picture because, in fact, it is a subject of a complaint that we are handling. In fact, complaints we are handling. Mm. So uh, that matter for us um, is still under discussion. But our code is very specific. It says due care and responsibility shall be exercised by the press with regard to the presentation of brutality, violence, and suffering. So the code is quite clear. Um, and we expect every publication that subscribes to this code, and the daily newspaper you are talking about, in fact, subscribes to this code, we expect them to live by this code. Well, they're doing it in the public interest. Let's not take them as an example. Let's use other examples. There have been others in, in, in the media of where the media defends its right to put out an image or a statement that it says is in the public interest. This is what the public demand, and we're supplying them with that information. Um, it, it's not a question of what does the public demand. The question is of what use is it to society. Mm. Again, our code is very clear. The press exists to serve society. That's what our code says. Yeah. So that everything that we do must be in the public interest. In other words, um, it must be information that the public out there needs not what will increase our circulation or our viewership. So, so William, is, is that the litmus test? Yeah, I think so. So um, one of the think tanks around ethical issues is the, the Pointer Institute in the States, and one of the um, revised ethical principles they've just come out with is that they believe that news should be something that can help citizens engage and respond to issues. So it's not simply, as Joe said, a means of, of, of using them as a, commercial, as a commercial end. So the moment you say it has to have some value, you then start saying, if you want to use especially violent or brutal images, I don't think that we should shy away from using those, because certainly we've seen in the history of journalism a number of occasions, if you think of uh, the 76 uprisings, there's an image that will leap to mind. That kind of image helped shift things fundamentally in the international media yeah. about what was actually going on in our country, the fact that they were shooting children. You, there are any number of images around the war in Vietnam, for example. There's all sorts of especially powerful images that can really affect change. The trouble is, is the moment you start to use those kinds of images, and if you don't contextualize them, if you don't give them some 
real sense of why you're using that particular image, the harm that you potentially cause by traumatizing people, by not giving that person dignity in their death, usually or very often, then you have to say, is it, is it sufficiently worth us putting that particular image on our front page or somewhere else? You know? and, and, and when you start having those decisions, and if your decision starts to lie in favor of saying, well, look here, we can't really justify why we're using this because on the basis of... So one of the common responses to the use of those images is, well, this is what's happening in the places where these people live. Well, yes, we live in a violent country. The question you then have to ask is, do we need to use violence in order to undermine violence, in order to reduce levels of violence? Because I think fundamentally, if you take Joe's uh, principle of to mm. serve society, to serve the citizens... Showing violent images doesn't help reduce violence. In fact, violence begets violence. And it's, it's, so it's not like you're going to reduce it. In fact, all you do often is stoke it up. Well, so it's about giving context to those images, relevance, and, and explaining the relevance of using an image. Yeah, in fact, you should have a, 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 a banning reason why you use an image like that. Mm. Um, what, what about words? Because uh, the, we're, the, we're, in, we're in the trade of words. and The, the same applies to what we write. Everything has to be done in order to give citizens information that they can use. What about phrases like Gupta Gate or Enkandla Gate or uh, Modi Mole? Before he was even, uh, before he was even, well, he was accused of the crime, but before he was convicted of it, he was already being referred to as a Modi Mole monster. Mm. What about news's responsibility in using words like these? Um. Again, I will not go into the specifics, but essentially what we say is that the same uh, uh, sensitivity has to apply when it comes to the use of words. We're going to uh, open up the lines, 891 uh, William, what, what would you say on this? Well, yes, I think that very often, in fact, you have seen that where there's an, uh, a desire to use uh, catchy phrases, they can come back and bite people. You know, they, we saw it uh, in the case of Baby Tsipang where this was about an, a nine-month infant who was allegedly gang-raped by nine men. Now, what happened was there was outrage, as you can understand, the graphic details of how this poor infant had been uh, so horrifically assaulted were revealed, and before the men even appeared, they were named in some of the media. As a result of that, they were then chased out of their out of their communities. They lived in fear for their lives. They lost their jobs. And then, as it happened, seven of those nine men, in fact, had nothing to do with the the, the, the horrific crime. It was two of the men. And yet those seven men had had their lives completely and utterly destroyed. So these things do have an impact, you know. So the, mm. whether you choose to identify someone, whether you choose to give them that kind of a name. Imagine if in the case of the Mori Mori monster, that man had been innocent of the, of, the, of the crime. It would have been, how do you come back from that kind of thing, you know, when you start to typecast someone as a, as a monster? Well, it's, it's also about the information explosion that we've seen. And, and so the media yeah. want to differentiate and be a little bit different from what's already available. Um, it's, it's essentially what we are saying is that as journalists we should be more responsible than anybody who just sends out a tweet irresponsibly. What we do has to be governed by media ethics. Let me take this call before we take a short break. Stuart in KZN, he wants to talk to values and good news. Stuart, good morning. Good morning. Uh, good morning to you and your listeners. I'm Stuart Pennington. I run the website www.sagoodnews.co.za. Mm-hmm. And 
I spend my life trying to balance the bad news with with the incredible amount of good news that comes out of this country. So the debate on what is and what isn't news is really important because if you read any newspaper, I would guess that 80 to 90 percent of the reports or the stories are negative. And it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary for me that, that when you listen to the news on the radio, you hear a whole lot of negative stories, and then we go further, and we say something like, and further abroad, and then we have a story of a bus accident in Bangladesh or in China, uh, when on the same day, there is there are at least five or six good news stories that are coming out of South Africa. So I... I enjoy listening to this kind of debate, but it's very theoretical, I think. Newspapers are out there to make money, to make a profit. They believe they can do that by having as much negative and sensationalist news as they possibly can. They don't abide by the press code, which talks about truth, balance, and context. Well, Stuart, how's it working for you? Because you say those, the, your, your, you know, those you criticize are doing it in order to, to, for a good business model to make money. How is it working for you, publicizing good news? Well, you know, my website has 40,000 uh, readers a month. Uh, we have 25,000 newsletter subscribers, and we have about 25,000 Twitter followers. So there's a need out there uh, for, for news that is positive. Um, I'm not for one minute suggesting uh, that we're promoting sunshine journalism. But I am promoting balance, uh, and the fact that our website has been going for 10 years and has grown over that period just by word of mouth, I think vindicates my view that a balance of good and bad news is really important, particularly in South Africa, where transformation and where healing are so much part of, of, our, of what we need to do um, as a society. Stuart and KZN, thank you very much for your call. Stuart, running good news. Uh, what, what do you say about this, Joe? Um, uh, Stuart, I think it's... Freedom, I mean, the, the Constitution gives us freedom of expression. So you choose to have um, good news in your publication. Somebody else might choose to have something else. Um, the Constitution allows us to have all this. The only thing is that we should not enjoy freedom of expression at the expense of other people's rights. Um, so your choice, good luck to you. It's about other people make their own choices. It's about speaking to your audience, isn't it? Audience, Engaging yes, that true. audience. Mm-hmm. 23 minutes after 8, William, I'll give you a chance to respond to this as well. And I'd like to take us into what is the second challenge, apart from the information explosion, this idea of of an economy around attention and whether we have a serious deficit in the attention of our listeners that we're fighting for this commodity of attention. 23 minutes after 8, let's go for a short break. We're back after this. We don't know why you want to invest your money. Maybe it's for your daughter's wedding or to build a man cave. We just don't know that. But we do know that most investment companies will charge you setup costs and initial advice fees before they've even invested your money meaning they'll make money whether they grow your money or not. But with the Liberty Evolve investment range, unless we first make you at least 13% a year after tax, you don't pay those fees at all. No, we don't know why you want to invest, but we do know that we shouldn't make money before first making you a lot more money. 
To get the Liberty Advantage, visit liberty.co.za or speak to your broker. Ask him. He'll know. Liberty, the advantage of knowing. Liberty is an authorized financial services provider. Decencies apply. Thanks to Telcom Business, I can start my next business venture with confidence because from the get-go, I'll have fast uncapped ADSL.coza domain registration, hosting with storage and email. Yep, that's going to be the next big thing, only bigger, just as soon as I figure out where the next venture is going to be. Get an uncapped deal from Telcom Business and get your business going for the promotional price of $3.99 a month. Call 10213, visit telcomshop.coza or go to a Telcom store. T's and C's apply. Rethink uncapped. Telcom Business. The Forum at 8 on SAFM. 24 minutes after 8. We were talking about the information explosion and uh, how it's affected our, the basic tenets of media ethics. The question we're asking today, are media ethics a casualty in our rush to make or break news? Now, I, I was reading an article by uh, Doug Conant. He's the, the CEO of a former company in Kellogg's in the U.S., a, a leadership entrepreneur. He also writes for the, the Harvard Business Review and the New York Times. He's a bestseller on, on, on the New York Times. And he said there's two challenges. First, that information explosion, but the second, the attention economy that we have. And there's a serious commodity that we're fighting for, which is the attention of our listeners, of our audience. And that sort of leads us into sensationalism and, and some fatigue that we're trying to combat. Joe, how, how do you address this issue? Um, in fact, the, the days of scoop journalism are gone. <laughs> Nobody can claim to have a scoop because before it, anybody knows about it, it's on Twitter. Uh, before you know about it, it's on radio. So essentially what audiences do is they go and pick up where they can get the analysis the, um, the depth in, uh, behind the story. Um, and that is where the commercial media can compete because today the, 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 the internet has made it so much easier for people to get information and it's at a, any time. It's yeah. a question of speed, so it takes us to that second point, our rush to make or break news. Are we in a rush? Uh, is there a need for speed? No. The, the speed is provided by the tweets and by the um, by the blogs, etc. But ultimately, professional journalists have to sit back and say, "What does this mean?" Are, are we trying to compete with 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 them out there to to make or break this news? And, and instead of giving the context, the background, the deeper meaning of stories? Yeah, there's no doubt, you know, and the fact that we've seen. Uh, a proportional decrease in the number of journalists, for example, in newsrooms, that you have fewer journalists having to do more. Especially when you're talking about our, our print media sector, you've got, you know, and you've got then an exponential increase in the number of PR organizations and they're feeding out, you know, spin, basically, which is not news and not something that's incredibly useful. So the sooner they can get their story out, the more likely they are to be believed, for example. So there very much is a, a, a significant time pressure. We saw it, for example, uh, recently with that, that killing of that, of that uh, young man at a school in KZN, where the, it was broke, that story was broken by the Daily Sun, and it was picked up then by the other major media. The thing that most of the ma- other major media had not done was to go there and actually work out what the story was. It was mm-hmm. only the day or so after that they actually said, oh, why did this happen, that they started to do that. And that kind of thing undermines journalism ethics fundamentally because you're using an especially violent video, an especially brutal series of images for what purpose? You know, 
it undermines the basic ethical tenets of journalism. Seek, seek the truth and report it as fully as possible. When you have to report something as fully as possible, it means you have to have a bit of a moment for reflection. So if you just want, if you want rumors and, and nonsense from whether you're having dinner or lunch with an orangutan, or whether you're finding out what the president said uh, in the, uh, on his latest policy advice statement or something, you need to make sure that you've got the right people and that it's from a trustworthy and reliable source. And certainly that rush, I think, has impacted. And some newsrooms are better at, 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 at mm. responding to, the, to that kind of thing than others. Some of them are a bit more hesitant in the details that they reveal. But it's very, very clear that that kind of thing has fundamentally challenged a lot of our journalism ethics. And we see it on a regular basis. There's also a competition in the sense that, that listeners, readers don't have as much time. If, if we look at what Google are saying now, they've got a chief economist, so clearly they look at this as a business story. They're saying on average a consumer spends 70 seconds reading news online and 25 minutes that they're reading a newspaper. So the time that it takes to read and look at a story online isn't the deep journalism that we're talking about here, Joe. It's that quick reaction speed journalism, and that's where journalists are also on Twitter and Facebook. Um, as I say, what, what happens with that very quick read is that if that quick read uh, draws you into a story, you will spend the time to look for the real story. And you need to know where to find that real story. And this is where, as I say, the professional journalist comes in. Because they will provide research, well-researched stories. They will provide well-written stories. Stories that you can enjoy reading. And you can spend time on those stories. We've got some SMSs here. Brian Kumalo in Peter Marisberg. He says, what is the balance between patriotism and journalism ethics? He thinks there's a huge lack of patriotism in journalists. Are we supposed to be patriots? <laughs> um, generally, journalists are patriots in that what they do, they want to do it because they want to improve their society. But if you are thinking of patriotism in the sense of supporting specific people or specific organizations, that is not patriotism. So we're supposed to support the information that makes us better decision makers as a society. As a society, essentially. It's I'll add to that that yeah. you want to add that you want to actually entrench the rights contained in our constitution. That would be an act of patriotism. Right. Let's find out what Morning Talk is discussing today at 9 o'clock. Rowena, what's on the agenda? Hello, Dash, and good morning to you. Coming up on Morning Talk today, we're going to explore ANC Treasurer General Dr. Zuelim Kizeh's suggestion that companies should fund political parties. He's also suggested the establishment of a trust fund which will um, administer and disperse these funds. And today being Tuesday, we have Talking Finance with uh, Brian Hirsch, and the focus for today's show is Common Mistakes people make when saving for retirement. On Property Matters with Dineo Molomo, we're going to take a look at how investment property is taxed, and then we'll talk about the issue of piracy on African waters. This and more right here on Morning Talk. Thanks, Darshan. The Forum at 8 on SAFM. Thank you. We're now talking about whether media ethics are a casualty in our rush to make or break news. We've discussed what media ethics are and, and to some degree whether we're in a rush or not. I want to talk about who is our now and is it just journalists that we're talking about here or is it everyone that chooses to go online and enter into conversations about public officials on Twitter and Facebook? Joe, are, are, are media ethics and media laws only governing how journalists operate? 
Um, in fact, what what should be governing what we put out there, what we say, is in fact the South African Constitution. That should be the bottom mm. line. It should cover every person who tweets, every person who who writes a blog, or every person who writes for a publication. Um, now, what happens is that some of us have tried to gel what is in the Constitution. We try to put it into a code, um, um, a, um, a, um, a, a something like. Um, um, the ethics in a, in a can mm. that's what we do but ultimately freedom of expression affects every person at a time when communication is being democratized so ethics should affect every one of us as citizens well, the reason I ask this question is because you see it often on, on Twitter, and, and William, I know you're quite active on Twitter mm. as well, and you see people writing, retweet does not equal endorsement. And it's usually on a lot of journalists' uh, Twitter feeds, and they say, well, this, this is my disclaimer. What I write here is, is you know, not an endorsement of anyone in particular. I'm just conveying an opinion. But is, is this really a defense? Can journalists use this, especially if they, no. they're charged with defamation, for example? No, and the, the thing for all people and everyone to be aware of is, is putting something on, on Twitter is the same thing as going on air and announcing to whoever the, is listening to that particular radio station, whatever the content of that tweet is, whether or not you say, oh, this is just a retweet, doesn't mean endorsement. That kind of thing is not a legal, is, is not a legal justification, and you can be... Um, both sued uh, for that particular t- comment that you make and you can also be I mean I think importantly for journalists if they go and they say something on their Twitter account on the weekend even if that's not during the employed time of employment if it brings their organization or their reputation into disrepute they can be fired for that you know it's, it's not a it's not something to be taken lightly so the ethics apply to traditional journalists, to those who use it as their profession, they get paid to do that job doesn't apply to people outside of that but what does apply to people outside of that is if you go on Twitter or any social media platform and you say something that is fundamentally racist or sexist or any of those sorts of things you can be charged for that if it's, if it's racist you can be criminally charged under the Equality Act so you can also be sued for defamation so it's in as much as it's democratized our media, it doesn't mean that you can just go and behave like, a, like some kind of a lunatic as people do. That said, if you want to go out there and start tweeting about how you think uh, there's no single problem in South Africa and anyone who says that there is is simply a raving lunatic, you're perfectly entitled to do so. Similarly, if you want to go out there on Twitter and run an account that says South Africa's going down the drain, there's no hope we're all going to die tomorrow, Again, you're perfectly entitled to do that. Is it ethical? Is it balanced? Probably not, but you're perfectly entitled to do so that. So, Joe, is, is the test there when you start to name individuals, name public institutions, but if you speak in generalities, then you're safe? No, no, that, that isn't the deciding factor. The deciding factor is what is it you are saying <coughs> about somebody else? Um, are you bringing that person into, I mean, are you reducing his dignity by what you, you mm. publish? And, and what are the yes. damages? Would that be a, a consideration? That, that would be a consideration. So that applies to everybody. Everything we say publicly uh, falls under that category. 
What about malice of intent? What about when people not only just damage your reputation, but do so knowingly, willingly, and with that intent to do so? Malice just uh, compounds the, the, the damage that you're going to, to be awarded. Um, the, 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 the malicious intent makes the offense worse than it would have been if he had committed it innocently. Have we had any cases regarding Twitter or Facebook in South Africa? Um, not as far as I know in South Africa, there have been a few that are, are, have been discussed, but also as far as I know they've been settled. But certainly internationally there are a number of cases like this um, where in one instance someone in the UK went and decided to sue a number of people, over 300 who had done a retweet of a particular defamatory tweet. Um, and in almost all of those instances they settled, they accepted a, a guilt, a, a fine of a admission of guilt fine, and they dealt with it that way, so many of them didn't actually go to court. But So there, there is precedent for these things, and what's, because it's a globalized format, it's very likely that what happens in the UK and in the States, etc., and other countries with similar uh, laws would be followed and adhered to. Well, you say the States. I think there was a case at CNN a, a couple of years back where a journalist was getting onto a flight and he tweeted, I feel a little bit nervous. I saw a man with a turban on my flight or, or something in 140 characters, of yeah. course. But uh, that was retweeted widely and CNN took action against that journalist and fired him. So yeah. clearly what you do say online matters and if it's retweeted, you reach that larger audience. It's not just about the one or two people that you're hoping to talk to. Let's, uh, let's Let's talk to you now. Give us a call, 0891104208, asking, are we in a rush to break news? And uh, are media ethics the casualty in that? We've got Chris in Randburg, and Micah Newlands has been holding on. Mike, good morning. Uh, good morning, yes. And I, uh, yes, thank you. I, I, my, my thought, two things. Firstly, um, we must just accept the fact that newspapers are in business. I know the debate's moved on a little bit, but, uh, you know, newspapers are in business to sell newspapers, and unfortunately, bad news does sell. Uh, so, you know, that's a fact of life. The more newspapers are sell, the more people advertise, the more money they make. So we must just accept that as a fait accompli. What we've got to just avoid doing is, um, you know, this, this expression that one gentleman on the panel used in the public interest really scares the, the hell out of me because that is the expression the old National Party used to use when they wanted to protect us from their, uh, their, their ill doings and the same that the ANC constantly used, not in the public interest. What they really mean is they want to protect themselves. And this, if, if the newspapers now take on this, uh, cry as to or, or become judge and jury as to what is in the public interest. I think we're on a hiding to know. We're not. Refer to that newspaper you mentioned earlier on. I haven't seen the picture, but I'm sure it's quite gruesome. But me personally, I want to know about it. I want to see what is going on in this country. I don't want to look at it through rose-tinted rose glasses, uh, gentlemen, because if I do that, then the reality of where we are as a country uh, is not going to be exposed. And then the, the government ultimately must carry the can for this, and the reflection is not in the newspapers. It's up to the government of the day to correct the issue, not not the newspapers. Well, Mike, thank you for your call. Uh, he, asked, you. he asked a good question, Dan. Jill in Durban also asked it on SMS. How do you measure public interest? And uh, she also asked, and I, and I know, Joe, it's something you were talking about recently. What is the press code with respect to religious rights? And I know you were talking about how much involvement should religion have in the press, in our media. Uh, she asks, uh, what about individuals' rights? And uh, she says, is Zapira bound to the same rules? Perhaps you can, you can put all of that together. I know Mike gave you a handful there. I'm going to hand you a little bit more. Okay. Um, first, the public interest. Um, our code is very clear. It says, by the public interest, we understand uh, in, it to be information of legitimate interest or importance to citizens. In other words, it must be of importance to all the citizens 
and they should be able to use that information. Um, so that's how we define it in the um, in the press code um, about um, religion, etc. Um, everybody has rights that are protected in the constitution. That is the bottom line for every citizen in this country. And ultimately, religions are respected in the country's constitution, and therefore that is reflected in our in our code and generally in the way that we behave towards each other. We respect people's religions. Now, as far as um, uh, Zapiro is concerned, you might have noticed that there has been a decision by the ombudsman uh, where he says um, uh, Zapiro was using his freedom of expression when he drew the recent ca- uh, cartoon that he drew. But ultimately, that matter is still going to be taken on appeal. And therefore, at this point, I can't comment. Difficulty coming. William? Yeah, sure. A range of uh, very interesting and fabulous ethical issues. So we need to distinguish um, what's in the public interest and what's of interest to the public. And I think that they're fundamentally different things there. So it might be interesting to the public to see an incredibly violent or brutal image. Is it in the public interest to see that particular image? It may be, but again, it's about context, and each of these things needs to be taken on a case-by-case basis. It's not as though there's a one, there's a simple one rule that fits all sort of scenario. But we we do have a kind of macabre obsession with with you know driving past an accident, we slow down to look at it because we're fascinated by something that's tragic and it mm. moves us. So I mean, uh, the newspapers want to move us clearly. Well, yes, but there's, a, there's also the very real issue of secondary traumatization. There's also the issue that South Africa is an especially violent, brutal society. Our very recent past is unbelievably, phenomenally violent. You know, you don't need to go very far to just see what was happening less than 15 years ago in townships less than 10 kilometers away from where we are now, people being, being killed systematically. That kind of thing you don't just get over in one or two days. And when you've got a nation that's traumatized, you're not going to solve it by exposing those people to more violence. All you do by doing that is you desensitize them and you make violence, you almost legitimize that level of violence. But it's aside from violence. I mean, let's leave that for the moment. If you think of something that's of interest to the public versus the public interest, if, for example, a a senior politician is found to be having an affair, Let's say the senior politician does this in their own time. After hours in Cape Town, they go and they visit someone and they have a lovely time and they do this. They're married, but they're having an affair. That may be of interest to the public, but it's not in the public interest to know that. If, however, it transpires that this same minister happens to take this person out and he goes and he buys his tea or she dinner at fabulous restaurants and the finest champagne and then charges it to the, 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 the South African citizen, then it becomes an interest, an issue of interest to the public. Then it becomes a public interest, public interest issue. And that's when we then have a legitimate need to want to expose that and reveal that. And those are the kinds of sort of fine line decisions that we need to be making. Of course, the thing about news Newspapers being in the, in the business of selling news and that bad news sells. Yes, it's true. It is to a degree, and it also isn't. In as much as if we win a major sporting event, the newspaper is going to go to the 
Go to the Hilt with fabulous pictures, and that will also sell. The matric results sell more papers of some of our, of our daily newspapers than any other time of the year. And that's a good news story, fundamentally. But it's, the model shifting from just selling the news to selling people information that they will find useful. And that leads on to your fourth issue about what constitutes news. And there's a fundamental shift there about finding out what's just going on. As Joe said earlier, you, if you want to know what's happening now, you get onto Twitter and you get onto any of the social media. If you want analysis, if you want stuff that you can use, if you want to know how our government's spending their budget, for example, that's the role that news organizations can and should be playing because they've got experts and the necessary expertise to analyze and think through things that you or I may not know how to do. Well, that's what we want to do now. This is the last part of the discussion. What is news and how do we as a public discern it from the noise that's out there? Let's take Chris's call. He's been holding on from Randberg and he says we do sensationalize news. Chris, good morning. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Go ahead. What thank are your you questions? for taking my call. I'll give you again another example. Sure. Yesterday at 9 o'clock, the 9 o'clock news with Babak Nichetti, mm. uh, she, I think, uh, well, she got the excerpt, I don't know from which particular network, but about the Iranian uh, minister, Zarif. What he said was that extremists uh, from both sides, from the Sunni and the Shia, will cause instability in the Middle East, and also said extremist groups from Christian, Jewish and Hindu backgrounds can also cause mayhem and play a role in there, but that was conveniently left out of the news. It happens all the time. I mean, it's, you know, you must, I think one must first ensure that you verify the both sides of the story before you just make one particular comment and you just start uh, uh, believing a particular network. And this is pure sensationalization again with yesterday's 9 o'clock news. I think, she must, I think you need to just verify what he said. There. He said all extremist groups. Chris, thank you very much thank for that you. call. It's going to be difficult for us to verify what we said last mm-hmm. night right now, but uh, let, let's take the example at least and, and, and look to it. We, we have an obligation to present all the essential facts, not suppress anything that or distort the views that, that may be represented. Uh, is there something to what Chris is saying now? Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, the, the, the code says news shall be presented in context and in a balanced manner without any intentional or negligent departure from the facts, whether by distortion, exaggeration or misrepresentation, material omission or summarization. The code is very clear about that one. What about identifying people? Because uh, he's also talking about identifying people based upon their religion or ethnicity. The code also speaks to when we should do this and um, under what conditions we should then do this, right? Um, in fact, the, we, 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 we do that if it is relevant to the story. Um, where, where it is not relevant to the story, a person's race, a person's religion, a person's um, um, sexual orientation, all those things are immaterial and therefore shouldn't be mentioned in the story. Um, the, um, the, the code again says, um, except where it is strictly relevant to the matter reported and it is in the public interest to do so, the press shall avoid discriminatory or denigratory references to people's race, gender, sex, pregnancy, marital status, ethnic or social origin, color, sexual orientation, age, disability, religion, conscience, belief, culture, language, and birth or other status, nor shall it refer to people's status in a prejudicial or pejorative context. 
So the code is quite clear about these issues. William, I want to pick up this discussion mm. with you, but uh, let's just take a short break. We're back after this. What does to prosper mean to you with ABSA Rewards? It means earning real cash back every time I swipe my ABSA card. It's knowing that some of what I spent on that new full set of tires is coming back to me. It's the peace of mind of knowing that the security system I paid for is paying money back to me. With ABSA Cash Rewards, it all adds up. Every time you swipe your ABSA debit, check or credit card, you earn real cash back for you to spend as you like. To join ABSA Rewards, SMS Rewards to 31513. ABSA, member of Barclays, an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. Standard SMS rates apply. The Forum at 8 on SAFM. Are media ethics a casualty in our rush to make or break news? Uh, William, what would you say to our last caller? Look, I think uh, Joe dealt with it very clearly, and, and the basic ethical principle is seek truth and report it as fully as possible. So if uh, someone is, uh, says something and then you quote that very selectively, then yes, that's, that's, that's not accurate, it's not, it's not being fair, and it's not ethical practice. Um, on the issue of identification of people, again, the news is a very powerful thing. If people are in the news... It has an impact on them, on their lives, on broader society. If, for example, someone, you know, we saw uh, when our former president was, was, was especially unwell, the massive media interest in that, you know, the, the outpouring of emotion, the, 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 the prayers, etc., etc., that has a fundamental impact on people, the way that that kind of thing is reported. So similarly, if you're reporting on instances especially involving those who are more vulnerable in society, SABC's editorial policy on this is very good. Um, the press code has now got an entire section on children, for example, that you need to exercise extreme care and you need to exercise extra care in the way that you choose to report on those people. So if, for example, you're dealing with someone in a state of trauma, someone in a state of grief, you need to have consideration of that. You're dealing with a human being who isn't in full cognizance of their faculties if they've just been in an accident or just witnessed something horrific. If you're dealing with a child, there's extra levels of protection and care that need to come in. And when you violate those particular ethical principles, you're not only then violating that basic ethical principle, but you also are also very likely to be violating that child's fundamental right to dignity and privacy. As a consumer of news, not talking as a producer of one now, when, when we consume news, what, what should we be on the lookout for? What are some of the tips that we should be doing? I, assuming that we can't educate every journalist about all the media ethics and media laws, maybe we can equip every citizen with what they should know when they read a newspaper and discern that news from the noise. Joe, what, what do you do and what should we be doing when we're reading newspapers? Um, my recommendation is that every South African who reads newspapers or magazines needs to look at the South African press code, which they can find on um, www.presscouncil.org.za. Um, and you measure the performance of the publication you read against this code, and if you find that they don't live up to the code, then please write to the press council. How do, how do you choose on a day? There's so many newspapers, and, and if we just take traditional media, there's online platforms, there's also radio and TV. How do you choose what to listen to and what's significant? How do you choose what's significant? Um, again, it, it depends on the individual. And the, as I say, 
our constitution is so fantastic it gives you the right to choose whatever you want to choose um, William, what would you what, say? What you would need to say is ask yourself why you are choosing a particular publication as opposed to another. You need to be very clear about the reasons why you choose that publication. But read more and you're better informed. Better informed, yes. William? So, I would fully support everything Joe just said, but if you're sitting at home and you're wanting to start to think and analyze the news more critically, there's a thing that we use in our office, it's called the drive which stands, it's a, it's a series of letters that stand each one to remind you of something, the, the name of which is just an, ac- an acronym. Um, so the one is diversity. Think about the diversity of stories that you hear in a news bulletin. Say to yourself, what stories am I hearing and what stories am I not hearing about? Then think about, is the story about rights? Is it not about rights? Are they rights being talked about? Are they rights not being talked about? Do rights feature at all? Given South Africa's history, this is an important issue. Given the challenges we face, this is an important issue. Then think about identity. Whose identities are we seeing? In other words, who's in the story? Are these people of power? Are these people that don't have power? And linked to that is whose voices are heard. So in stories, of, for example, about uh, Marikana, the majority of voices in those stories were not from the miners who were directly involved. It was very often from Lonman, the SAPS, from government, PR agencies, occasionally some lawyers, but very, very few voices of the people actually involved. So if you think about those kinds of things, then you'd say, you'd move to the next step, which is around ethics. Say to yourself, would I be comfortable if I was the subject of that story, or if it was my brother or my sister or my cousin or my aunt? If it makes you feel uncomfortable, then you need to refer back to the code that Joe referred to and say, well, is there something? And then if you feel strongly about it, you can submit a complaint. But basically, if you start to think about whose voices you're seeing, whose stories you're seeing, are you getting a diversity of voices? Are you getting a diversity of perspectives and a diversity of issues. If your answer to that is no, you need to start to find some alternative news sources. doesn't mean ignore only those ones, but if you're only hearing from uh, politicians, you need some new diet and you need to try and think of something else. If you're only hearing from the rich and powerful, read the Daily Sun a bit more. If you're only hearing from uh, the people that, that don't have a voice in society, then you need to be engaging more with SAFM. Should we be asking why more often when we read or consume any form of media? Why am I being told this? Why is this a story that's interesting? Why isn't this person involved in the story? Why, why am I not hearing from more people? Why is a basic question mm. that everybody should ask all the time. Why am I reading this particular publication? Why am I reading this particular story? Why am I being told this particular thing? So that is the key question. Uh, in fact, the key to all our problems, essentially. So if we go back to being <laughs> five-year-olds at home and just ask why, why? all the time, we will exactly, have better answers. Exactly. You, know, you can learn a lot from five-year-olds, actually, <laughs> specifically about asking why. Next time a politician says we were quoted out of context, ask why are they saying that? Gentlemen, I want to give you a chance to just give us your closing thoughts. We've talked about a lot, media ethics, our rush to make or break news, who is our and what is news. But would you like to leave us with some closing thoughts, Joe? I'd I'd offer you the chance first. Um, As I say, my belief is that every journalist should, in fact, live this code, not just know it, but actually live it and show that it's part of his 
or her DNA. But at the same time, the public out there has to keep journalists accountable by knowing what the code is and saying, are these people living up to what their code says? And I welcome the challenge. I think journalists who are afraid of the media, of the public holding them accountable are, are bad journalists and shouldn't be out there anyways. Joe Plogway, thank you very much, Director in the Press Council. William Bird, your final thought? Yeah, again, it's about accountability. If you don't like what you read or see or hear on television, online, in your newspaper, write to the editor. If they don't get back to you, write to the press council, write to the Broadcast Complaints Commission. The only way we're going to get the democracy we want is if everyone participates and helps build the democracy that we want. William Baird, thank you very much for joining us from the uh, Director of Media Monitoring Africa. And thank you so much for writing in and uh, calling in this morning. We really do appreciate your tweets, Facebook messages and SMSs. Don't get yourself in trouble. Remember, you're also subject to defamation laws out there and uh, general damages, special damages, all subject to uh, things that you can be placed under control. So do remember that when you're writing something today. Thank you very much for joining us on AM Live. My name is Darshan Mudley, joining you again tomorrow, 6 to 9 a.m.